Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make sure that you are aware of a couple of things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. The message you're about to watch is week seven. Today we're tackling the topic of the prophets and asking the question, how was God proving his promise? If you've missed any messages in this series, we encourage you to go back and listen to the messages that you've missed. Once again, thanks for checking out this message here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. If you're a guest with us this weekend, we are currently studying together as a church family through a series that we are calling Pages, the story of God's love through the Bible, believing convictionally that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the Bible tells one amazing story. And it's the story of God's love. And as we began this series a few weeks ago, we understood from the start that ultimately the story of the Bible is the story of the glory of God. We looked at a verse the first weekend. I want to remind you of it. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Here's what it said. For from him and through him. Now, really most of us don't have any problem with those two phrases. From him, it all comes from God. And through him, it's by his means that all things have occurred. It's this last part where we get off track. For from him and through him, and say this out loud, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's what that means. You and I are not the main character in the story of the Bible. Ultimately, God is the main character in the story of the Bible. It is from him, it is through him, and ultimately it is all to him. Regardless of what we may read from some contemporary preacher or regardless what we may see on television that makes it sound like we are somehow the center of all that God is doing and all that God is doing is about our blessing and our prosperity and our favor. Ultimately, you and I are not the main character in the story of the Bible. It is a story about the glory of of God himself. And as we begin to walk through this together, we've unpacked it over the last... Well, before I do that, let me read you a quote I came across this week by John Piper that really summarizes this. This is what he said. God's ultimate goal in creation and redemption is to uphold and display his glory. For the enjoyment of his redeemed people 
from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is the main thing. Amen? Now, as we've unpacked this together, we've done it sequentially walking through the story of the Bible. And I want to, this weekend, intentionally review where we've come from because we make a transition this weekend, and I'll explain that in just a moment. So we started in Genesis 1 with creation. Remember that? Genesis 1, we started in creation, and we said, for his glory, God created the world to be inhabited by people who would love him and be loved by him. Ultimately, for his glory, God spoke everything that we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell into existence. And as the crowning point of his creation, God created us as human beings, but he made us for a specific reason, to reflect his glory in relationship with him by knowing him and being known by him, loving him and being loved by him. Meaning this, you and I as human beings will only find meaning, significance, and value in life ultimately as we live our lives for the purpose in which he created us, to live out of the overflow of an intimate love relationship with him. So that's where we started, creation. Then in week two, we looked at Genesis chapter three, the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned against God and lost the ability for human beings to be rightly related to him and his creation. Meaning this, when sin entered into the world, when we as human beings sinned against God, We lost the very reason that God had created us. We lost the ability to have a relationship with God. Sin separated us from God. But as we continued on in Genesis chapter 12, we we learned that God made a promise. God made us for a reason, for a purpose. We sinned against God. We lost the ability to relate to him. But God gave us a promise. It really started in Genesis chapter 3, but he really clarified the promise in Genesis chapter 12. We said in his sovereignty, God promised to send a savior to the world through the family of Abraham. Pastor Tom taught us that weekend about this promised Messiah that was going to come through the line and lineage of Abraham and would be a savior for all the peoples of the earth. He said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God made a promise that he would send into this world a Savior, a Messiah, who would ultimately be able to bring us back to God. Then the next week, we looked, we started in Genesis, but really this ran Genesis all the way through to Job in the Bible. Pastor Scott taught us about the pictures in the Old Testament. From Genesis all the way to Job, there are a few pictures outside of this section of Scripture, but the vast majority of the pictures that God gave us were from Genesis to Job. And these pictures, here's what they did. Through the Old Testament, God gave us pictures that point to the Savior who fulfilled God's promise. Most of the pictures taught us about how he was going to save us. Most of the pictures point to the fact that the Savior would shed his blood. He would give himself as a sacrifice. He would offer his body as a substitute. But from Genesis to Job, God was giving us pictures of how the Messiah would reconcile us to God by offering his life for us. Then last weekend, we looked at really what was Exodus and all the way through to Deuteronomy, and we covered the law. 
And we said that God's laws are not given to earn a relationship. They are given to lead us to Jesus so that we may enjoy a relationship with him. God made us to love him, to know him, be known by him, and loved by him. We sinned against God. We lost the ability to do that. God made a promise that he was going to send a Savior who would be able to reconcile us back to himself. God began to give us pictures of how this Savior is going to reconcile us back to himself. And God gave us a law to show us our inability to be able to make ourselves right with God. There was no way we could earn a right standing, and the law was pointing us to our need for a savior if you got all that say amen Amen. that's where we've come so far and i hope you've seen so far in the bible we've basically run genesis all the way to job in the old testament and we've covered all of these different pieces of why god gave us all of this old testament history But there's one more piece in the Old Testament that we want to look at. And this weekend is a weekend of transition. Because this weekend we bring the Old Testament to a close. And next weekend we will begin in the Gospels looking at the life of Jesus himself. Here's the last topic that we need to cover out of the Old Testament. And that is the prophets. The prophets. From Psalms. All the way through the end of the Old Testament, that book that is called Malachi. For some of you, you've already learned something this morning. You thought it was Malachi, but it's not Malachi. It's Malachi. So by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. From Psalms all the way through Malachi. Now, again, there are a few prophetic texts outside of that passage, but the majority of the prophecies in the Old Testament are from Psalms all the way through the book of Malachi. From Psalms to Malachi spans over a thousand years of human history. Think about that for a second. A thousand years. That's more than three times as long as America has been a nation. Psalms to Malachi spans a thousand years of human history. And for a thousand years, God, through the prophets, is speaking into the world and giving us insight about the coming Messiah. So here's the big idea for today. Throughout Old Testament history, over a thousand years of it, God sent prophets to progressively reveal the unique and undeniable identity of the Savior. The question that we raised when we gave you the initial handout of where we were going over this was when we got to the prophets, why did God take so long to fulfill his promise? Why over a thousand years? Well, he did that to progressively reveal the unique and undeniable identity of the Savior. And to give us some insight into how God used the prophets, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament that allows us to look back at Hebrews chapter 1. If you have your Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 1. 
And I want to read three verses here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, speaks about this entire Old Testament section of the prophets. Here's what he says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his, what? Say it out loud. Glory. Glory. What's this all about? His glory. And the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high The writer of Hebrews tells us some truth about how God used the Old Testament prophets. Now, before I unpack the statement that I gave you just a minute ago out of these verses, let me clarify for you something about Old Testament prophets versus what the Bible in the New Testament calls the gift of prophecy. In the Old Testament, the prophets were those that the word prophet is a word that means to tell beforehand. That's the verb that it comes from. Old Testament prophets, God gave divine inspiration to declare future events with absolute certainty. Here's what that means. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke about things that had not yet happened things that had not yet occurred in history, and they foretold them with divine specific accuracy. So much so that if a prophet in the Old Testament foretold something that didn't come to pass, the Old Testament demanded that he be put to death. That's how serious it was. So they weren't 80% accurate, 90% accurate. No, if they were not 100% of the time speaking that which had been revealed to them by God that came true, then they were put to death. Now, the New Testament gift of prophecy is not like that. And all God's people said, amen, right? We'd be having a lot more funerals. The New Testament gift of prophecy is a sharing of insights from God's Word that God brings to mind in the moment by the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Very different. In the Old Testament, they spoke of things which had not yet happened, declaring them to be true before it happened. In the New Testament, the gift of prophecy, once the scriptures were completed, was to speak forth from the Word of God as the Spirit inspired you in the moment to speak into someone's life. So in the Old Testament, what we're reading about are men and women who were used of God 
to speak that which had not yet happened. And I want to say two things about it. Number one, God's revelation through the prophets was progressive. It's progressive. What do you mean by that? I mean that it developed over time. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. He said, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and to the fathers in the prophets, and here's the two phrases, in many portions and in many ways. The word many portions is a compound word that literally is two words put together. It's the word many and the word parts. So God spoke through the prophets in many parts. Here's what that means. Never did any one prophet give the whole picture. Every prophet simply gave a unique piece of the puzzle, a unique part, fragmentary, piece by piece. God was revealing who the Savior was going to be through the prophets. I told you a minute ago, the pictures revealed mostly how the Savior was going to reconcile us. But the prophets had a unique role. They were zeroing in on who this Messiah was going to to be many portions and then he said in many ways it speaks to the diverse media through which God revealed himself to the prophets sometimes God spoke to the prophets in dreams sometimes he spoke to them in direct voices sometimes he spoke to them in signs but here's what was happening over the period of over a thousand years in the old testament piece by piece God was giving us insight into who this Messiah was going to be. Let me try to illustrate it for you. When you came in this morning in your seat, all right, if you'll look down at your right leg there on the floor, I want you to reach down there and I want you to pick something up. You will find a puzzle piece. See how observant you were when you came in? You didn't even notice that was there, right? I want you to hold the puzzle piece up, all right? This, you have a piece of a real puzzle. If we put all these pieces together, now, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up and go find the person whose piece. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Now, here's what I want you to do. Look at your piece and tell me what the picture is. We don't really know, right? There's not enough. But here's what happened through the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament, God gave one piece at a time. The prophets were laying down a piece at a time of the puzzle. So here's what that means. They never with any one piece had clarity about all that God was saying about who this Messiah was going to be. They had a promise. God was going to send a Messiah. They had understood how this Messiah in offering himself as a sacrifice was going to atone for our sin. But they did not fully understand who because all they had in any given moment was one or two or three pieces at a time. I want to put the picture of the puzzle up here on the screen. Ah, there you go. See? Now, I see some of you going, okay, now where's my piece? I promise you, your piece fits this puzzle. Now, when we see the picture, now we can begin to understand how our piece fits into the revealed picture of what this is putting together. Right? Make sense? 
Let me give you an example. The prophet Isaiah, by the way, you can keep your piece, take it home, put it in the Bible with you, and every time you read the prophets, remember it's a piece of the puzzle, all right? Isaiah told us that the Savior would come, and through his sacrifice, we'd be made right with God. Look what Isaiah said. And and before I read this in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. Now let that sink in for a second. 700 years before Jesus was born. Listen to what Isaiah wrote. Surely, and what I'm reading for you has been has passed the test of historical criticism most recently in the 1940s with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls as being one of the most accurate historical documents we've ever put our hands on, the book of Isaiah. Listen to what it says. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We read that today. We read that today, and who do we see? Jesus, amen? Why? Because we've already seen the completed picture. We read this with crystal clarity, and we look back and go, yes, he was talking about Jesus. But in Isaiah's day, all they had was a piece to the puzzle. They'd not witnessed the birth of Jesus. They'd not witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection. They'd not witnessed the ascension back to heaven. They'd not been given the mission to take the gospel to the ends. They didn't know. All they had was the peace to the puzzle. How? Let me ask you. How could Isaiah, how could Isaiah have possibly Known 700 years with this amount of detail. How could Isaiah have, let me tell you how. God was telling his story. Piece by piece, he was putting the picture together. Second truth. And before I give it to you, let me ask this question. Okay. How, how, how then could we know for certain who this Savior is going to be? If all we had is pieces of the puzzle, well, well, here's the second statement. Look at it. God's revelation through the prophets was unique and undeniable. You see, once all the pieces of the puzzle are in place, you looked at that picture on the screen a minute ago, and what did you say? Ah, right? Why? Because once all the pieces of the puzzle are in place, it's as obvious as the nose on your face 
what the picture is, right? So what God did through the Old Testament is he laid down these pieces of the puzzle so that when Jesus stepped on the scene, and get this, the last piece of the puzzle was laid by Malachi, and then there was almost 400 years of silence from God before Jesus stepped on the scene. The picture was all in place. They knew exactly what the Messiah was going to look like. And now they were just waiting on him to appear. Go back to Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Look at the next phrase. In these last days he has spoken to us in his son. You see, once all the pieces of the puzzle were in place, it was abundantly clear so that when Jesus stepped on the scene, there was no denying he is the promised Savior. Let me try to illustrate it. September the 10th, of 1910 was a day that forever changed the way the criminal justice system in America works. September the 10th, 1910. You say, what happened on September the 10th, 1910? On that day, there was a man named Clarence Hiller who was murdered. Clarence had spent the afternoon painting his home, painting the trim, the railings of his home. When he went to bed that night, he didn't know it would be his last night on planet Earth. But that evening, a man by the name of Thomas Jennings broke into his home. Clarence heard him rustling around in his home. Clarence came down to find out what was happening in his home, and Thomas Jennings murdered him. When Clarence's wife came down the stairs to see what had happened, she found her husband lying dead there in their home. The police began to investigate, and Jennings was convicted of murder by leaving his fingerprint in the freshly painted window seal of the window that he crawled in to break into the Hiller home. You say, why was that significant? Because that fingerprint discovery was the first time in U.S. history that a fingerprint was ever used to convict someone of a crime, specifically the crime of murder. The Supreme Court, in a historic ruling, upheld this conviction. And since then, fingerprint evidence has been a key used in the investigative process. The significance of fingerprint evidence, and I'll put a picture of a fingerprint up here for you. The significance of fingerprint evidence is that every human being has individual and unique ridges on his or her fingers resulting in the reality that no two people have the exact same fingerprint. As a matter of fact, even identical 
twins do not have the same fingerprint. Seven billion plus people on planet Earth. And not any two of us have the exact same fingerprint. So that scientists can, or, or investigators can conclude with scientific certainty if you or I have touched something, if they have our fingerprints on file, right? It's the theory of fingerprint evidence. Here's why that's important. All the prophecies in the Old Testament formed a figurative fingerprint that made it impossible for anyone but the promised Messiah to fulfill all of those prophecies. There were over 50 of them in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Look at it here on the screen. Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 7, again, 700 years before Jesus was born, said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name. Say it out loud. Now, again, we read that today, and we say what? Who is that? Right? Because we've read Matthew chapter 1. But when Isaiah said it, all it was was a piece of the puzzle. Isaiah said, hey, pay attention. One day, one day there's going to be somebody born of a virgin. And I'm sure everybody in Isaiah's day said, yeah, right, that happens every day. It's one ridge of the fingerprint. Let me give you another. Micah chapter 5. Micah was written over 750 years before Jesus was born. Look what it says. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. So, so 750 years before Jesus was born, Micah said, this Messiah who Isaiah said is going to be born of a virgin is going to come from the city of Bethlehem. Now, you say, wait a minute. Isn't that pretty easy that, that Micah just said he's going to come from a city? Well, look what Micah went on to say. His goings forth. In Hebrew, it means his origin, where and when he came from, are from long ago. From the days of, say it out loud. That piles it on a little bit, Amen. Isaiah said, he's going to be born of a virgin. Ridge in the fingerprint. Micah said, he's not just going to be born of a virgin. He's going to come from the city of Bethlehem. And when he's born in Bethlehem, you need to know that's not his beginning. He comes from eternity. He's going to step from outside of the parameters of time. And at a moment in time, through Bethlehem, through the virgin birth, he's going to come into this world 750 years before Jesus was born. Give you a couple of more. Genesis and Jeremiah tell us in Genesis 21, Genesis 22, Genesis 35, and Jeremiah 23. 
All of these chapters and verses specify the ancestry of the Messiah, that he will come from the line, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will come from the tribe of Judah, and he will come from the house of David. And this was written over 600 years in Jeremiah and over a 1,000 years in Genesis before Jesus was ever born. So now we've been told ridge number three. Not only is he going to be born of a virgin, not only is he going to be born in the city of Bethlehem, not only that, he's going to come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to come from the house of Judah, and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. Now we've specified who his great, 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 great grandparents are going to be. Let me show you one more. Psalms. Psalm 22. Listen to what Psalm 22, how it opens. Psalm 22, 1. Listen to what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds vaguely familiar to something you've read in the New Testament. Written over a thousand years before Jesus would be crucified. Psalm 22, my God, my God. Well, sure, Jesus was just quoting that. Oh, but listen what it says on down in the psalm. Psalm 22, verse 16 says, they pierced my hands and feet. And that was 600 years before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. Meaning, nobody had yet seen anyone ever crucified. So 600 years before crucifixion was invented, over a 1,000 years before Jesus would be crucified, David wrote in the Psalms and said, Ridge number four, he'll cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When they nail him to a cross through his hands and his feet. It goes on, we won't read it in Psalm 41 and in Psalm 35 to tell us that he'll be betrayed, to tell us that he'll be accused by false witnesses. Listen, Psalm 41.9 says, even my close friend in whom I have trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. A thousand years before Jesus was born. These prophecies for the most part were completely out of the control of the one that they were speaking about. They formed a figurative fingerprint. And Jesus did not just fulfill some of these prophecies. He fulfilled every single one of them. The probability of one man fulfilling 48. We've talked about before the probabilities of one man fulfilling 8. Let me tell you the probability of one man fulfilling 48. It's one chance... In a trillion, 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 trillion. According to Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ. Listen to what Lee Strobel said. Our minds can't comprehend a number that big. This is a staggering statistic that's equal to the number of minuscule atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of ours. And yet Jesus came on the scene and 
every single prophecy fulfilled in Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, because he fulfilled all these prophecies, we now recognize Jesus is the creator of all. Look at verse 2. He said, through whom he made the world. He created everything. He says, not only that, we know that Jesus is the sustainer of all. Look what he says in verse uh, number, number 3. He says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. But not only is he the sustainer of all, they, the, the writer of Hebrews says, man, because he fulfilled all the prophecies, he's God over all. Look what he says. He says, he's the exact radiance of his glory and the exact representation presentation of his nature. Jesus is that one who stepped out of time, stepped out of eternity, and entered the creation that he created. He came into time, born of a virgin, from the city of Bethlehem, from the household of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was nailed to a cross to die for our sins, to defeat death, hell, and the grave, and rose again from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the last thing that he says about him. Look what he says about him. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what that means. Jesus is the only Savior for all. The only Savior. The word purification is a word that means to make clean, to remove the stain of sin. Remember when we started this? told you that God, when he created us, imagine this finger represents me, this finger represents God. And when he made us, he made us to live in fellowship with him like this. But this hand represents sin. Sin entered into the picture. And sin separated us from God. There was nothing we could do to remove our sin But God gave us a picture of how. And God gave us the prophets to zero in on who. And when he came, he offered his body on a a cross. He took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself. And on the cross, he died for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead. We're going to talk about that on Easter Sunday. He rose again from the dead so that now you and I can put our faith in him and be reconciled back to God. That which we lost because of sin is given back to us in Jesus. I'll close with this verse of scripture. Why Why did God take so long to fulfill his promise? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Look what he says. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to what? Perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why did God, over a span of a thousand years, give picture 
after picture and piece of the puzzle after piece of the puzzle. Let me tell you why. So that when we see Jesus, we say, yes, yes, that is the Messiah. The question I have for you today is, have you ever received Jesus as your Savior, your Messiah? Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the truth that you've given us. God, I pray that you would help us to glean from these truths and grow in them. And God, I pray today for believers that are here first. I pray that God, today you've given believers even more confidence in the sovereign hand of God. Even more confidence in their faith in Jesus. But God, I pray today for unbelievers who don't know you. God, that today is a day that they've become convinced of the reality of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. As you sit with your heads bowed this morning, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing a song of worship. It's an opportunity for you to respond to what God is saying to you. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, but you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to know what it is to be saved. When we stand in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to slip out from where you're going to be standing and come to one of our pastors. We have pastors here across the front to come to one of them and simply say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a relationship with God through Jesus. If you're a believer, maybe you just want to come get in one of these altars and pray. Maybe you want to be alone with God. Or maybe you need a pastor to pray with you about something in your job, your health, your family. We're here. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. You just come. For the rest of us, let's use this as an opportunity to worship this great God we serve. Lord, may you be praised. May you be worshiped. May you draw all people to yourself. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Let's stand together as our team leads.